Welcome to another exciting episode of Topic Discuss where we're going to specifically address how to take COVID-19 numbers and the Delta variant down to zero. Welcome, Dr. Prince, to uh, a show of Topic Discuss, a new episode. Thank you for joining us. Um, uh, my audience is really excited to uh, have the opportunity to hear from a scientist who understands infectious disease and virology. Um, they've had a lot of questions about COVID, um, but really also uh, just virology and how viruses work. Um, so thank you for for uh being here tonight. And could you start with your background and a little bit about um, who you are and where you did your training and your expertise? Sure. My life has been anything but a straight line. Where I thought I would go is very different than where I am now. I grew up in Los Angeles, but had roots in St. George. So I came to Dixie College when it was a small junior college with 500 students but it had an excellent pre-dental program. And that's what I thought I'd spend my life doing. I come from a family of dentists. I went straight from Dixie into graduate school at UCLA, first in dentistry, but then got enthralled by pathology as part of the dental curriculum and wound up doing a DDS and a PhD degree at UCLA, working for my PhD on RSV, which is the primary cause of infant pneumonia worldwide. After UCLA, I went to Bethesda, Maryland, to the National Institutes of Health for a two-year fellowship, and here we are 46 years later still living in Maryland. Uh, along the way, I have spent almost a half century working on respiratory viruses, primarily RSV, but some work with parainfluenza, some work with influenza, some with a couple of minor respiratory viruses, uh, and worked along the way to develop what is now the standard of care for preventing RSV pneumonia in high-risk infants. It's a drug called Synergis. So that pathway, it really explains my professional life. I thought I was through with the biotech world, and then an encounter with a very bright individual who was working on the Dixie College campus brought me back in. He unfortunately died unexpectedly a year ago. So here I am now as CEO of a second biotech company. This one is called Soft Cell Biological Research. And what Brent, the founder, did was to open the door on what I think will be an entirely new frontier in medicine, what I call dark bacteria. These are microorganisms that we've known about for almost 90 years, that they get into the body and shed their coat and hide from the immune system. The problem is we've never been able to culture them, so nobody knew if they were good actors, bad actors, or just innocent bystanders. What Brent did was to start to crack that coat. So we're on the track, we think, of figuring out some pretty important chronic diseases. So that in a nutshell has been my scientific life. Along the way, I was also bitten by the history bug. Uh, I am a sixth generation Mormon. 
And so over the past 30 plus years, I wound up writing and publishing four books on various aspects of Mormon history. A mixed bag, and it certainly has nothing to do with where I thought I'd be in my life at this point. What's so interesting is here we are in St. George, Utah, uh, where there's this uh, biotechnology hub where you're coming into biotech, I'm in biotech, and, and we're talking about um, coronavirus um, kind of right out of this uh, research area in, in Little St. George. It's remarkable. You don't need a big city to do really good science anymore. Mm-hmm. That's true. Have, in, a, in essence, we also have a virtual company in that one of our officers lives in Boston and some of our advisors live in London and New York uh, and D.C. And it works. Yeah. It's just the way business operates now. You can't do the kind of work that we do without a wet laboratory. And we have that. We've got two, two laboratories, actually. One is a research lab and one is a diagnostic lab. But you can do a lot more than you used to be able to do in a lot smaller city than you used to need. It's very true. So w- one thing that I, I want to make sure I get correct with my audience is that is what your role was with RSV. What I'd like to say to people is Dr. Prince discovered RSV. So how accurate is that statement? Oh, it isn't. Uh, I did (laughs) working for 13 years with the man who did discover it. That was while I was at NIH. What happened was that in 1956, the virus was discovered at a time when a lot of viruses were being discovered. And the reason was that mammalian cell culture had finally come of age. To grow viruses, you need to grow them inside a cell. And the ability to grow those cells in Petri dishes opened the door to discovering a lot of viruses, many more in that decade than in the subsequent decade, because a lot of low-hanging fruit. Uh, Dr. Chanik, who was the discoverer of it, immediately started to develop a vaccine. He discovered the virus in 1956. In 1962, six years later, he started a clinical trial of a vaccine. That's warp speed, even before Operation Warp Speed. But the trial blew up in his face. That vaccine made the infants sicker when they got natural infection than the infants who got natural infection but didn't have the vaccine. And it was because of that that my mentor at UCLA assigned me to work on RSV. His interest was trying to figure out why the vaccine blew up. To do that, he realized we needed to have a small animal model for the disease, which we did not have. There was not the possibility at that point of testing a vaccine in animals because nobody had developed that. So my dissertation project was to develop an animal model, which we thought would be used primarily to decipher how that vaccine went awry. But by listening to what the animal model had to say, we found that conventional wisdom about RSV was 180 degrees the wrong direction. They had misinterpreted the bad vaccine trial and concluded that antibody was harmful. Now, in some diseases, some infectious diseases, antibody can be harmful. Dengue fever is one of them, but that's an aberration. And it turned out that the animal model said to us, no, if you get the right quantity of antibody in, you can protect against RSV. And that really 
was what became Synergis. Our first generation drug was derived from pooled human plasma. It was very cumbersome to do it, and you had to give a large volume, but it worked. Synergis is the second generation drug, and that's a monoclonal antibody. Uh, people now are pretty well familiar with that term, monoclonal antibody. It's important because it, it is many, many fold more potent than any other type of antibody that you can manufacture. So my role wasn't to discover the virus, and it wasn't even what it set out to be, which was to figure out why the vaccine backfired. It turned out that it took a much different turn, and we were able to go in a direction nobody could have predicted that remains the standard of care for preventing RSV. So this is really, really um, important content because when, when the audience it hears about, you know, vaccine and they have vaccine hesitancy uh, and they hear that, you know, there was a uh, back in 50s, 60s, uh, a, a vaccine was developed for RSV that, um, that made the kids more sick. Um, could you expound a little bit on what actually was happening? Was it the vaccine causing that? Or you, you alluded to that, but I just think to drill down on that for the audience will help them to understand how a vaccine works. Yes. And let me differentiate between a primary toxic effect and a secondary toxic effect. Primary would be you give the vaccine and immediately or within days, the patient gets into trouble because of that. That was not the case with this vaccine. Everything looked fine until the winter season came around. And winter, except for this year, because of what COVID has done in turning the world upside down, winter has been the RSV season. <clears throat> when the virus came to town naturally and began to infect these infants, the ones who had received the vaccine got sicker than the ones who didn't receive the vaccine. So it was a secondary toxic effect of that vaccine. We've never fully deciphered what all the mechanisms were. It's very complex, even though that's a virus that has only 10 genes. You and I have somewhere up to about 60,000 genes. And yet this little virus with 10 genes continues to mystify us. We haven't figured out why that vaccine didn't work. 60 years after that initial clinical trial, we still do not have a vaccine against RSV. There have been many attempts by many companies, large and small, we're just not there. It's not the only vaccine that has gotten people into trouble. At the same time that clinical trial was going on, there was a trial of a measles vaccine that was produced by this, in the same technique that we use with RSV, which is what Jonas Salk used earlier with polio. He grew up a bunch of the virus. He added formaldehyde to kill the virus, but not change it so much that the immune system couldn't recognize it. And that was the vaccine. Did the same thing for RSV, same thing for measles. But in those two cases, it backfired. For measles, it produced a disease when the child subsequently underwent natural infection that was called atypical measles. Now, they yeah. worked around that by developing a weakened strain of measles virus, which is now in the MMR vaccine. And that's a very good vaccine. In the case of RSV, all efforts to develop, whether an inactivated vaccine or a weakened live vaccine, none of those has succeeded yet. So, so to be yes. clear, oh, go ahead. 
So, yes, vaccine safety is a primary issue in my mind. It's what got me into science in the first place. Uh, yeah. But that being said, I'm anything but an anti-vaxxer. Well, and I think this is why this is such an important conversation, because when there is a problem with a vaccine, like you've said, and this is, this is why we do clinical trials to test whether there's going to be a problem with a vaccine, usually if there is a problem, it is related to the immune system's response to the very disease you're trying to prevent. It, it does not cause some other strange, you know, event in the patient, turning them into, you know, lizard people or, uh, you know, turning the, giving them autism. If, if there is a problem with a vaccine, it's, it's related to an immune response that we had not anticipated. Is that, is that accurate? That is accurate. And when we think of immunity, we generally think pleasant thoughts. <laughs> Our immune system keeps us alive. In cases where people are born with a rare deficiency of all arms of the immune system, uh, they're doomed to die. Unless you can give them a stem, stem cell transplant from somebody else that can reconstitute what was missing. But we have many, many examples of where the immune system can overreact to something and instead of protecting you, it hurts you. Now, very common example is you go out and sprain your ankle. Well, your body will respond. It's not responding to an infectious agent, but it's responding to an injury. And it's the same system that kicks into gear. So what do you do? Well, the best thing to do is you wrap that sprained ankle in ice and what that will do is to down-regulate that inflammatory response. And if you do that for a fairly brief period of time, maybe just overnight, then you go on to healing and normal function very quickly. If you don't, then you're in for days or even weeks of a sore ankle because the system within the body that is designed to protect you has harmed you because it overreacted the same thing happens with infectious diseases. Now, with some infectious diseases, RSV being one of them, the disease itself is a manifestation of the body's response to the virus and not direct damage by the virus. That's a really important thing to keep in mind. In other words, when RSV infects the cells, it doesn't kill, kill very many cells. But what it triggers is a cascade of inflammation. A term that's more and more familiar with the public is cytokine storm. Cytokines mm -hmm. are chemicals produced by the body's immune system that under normal circumstances keep you alive and keep you functioning, but they can overreact. And when they do, then there's harm to you. So um, RSV... I found through my animal modeling is primarily an inflammatory disease. Yeah. Once we figured that out, then in the laboratory animals, we used an, it's a new world rodent called a cotton rat. It's an agricultural pest in the Southern parts of the U S but it turns out to be a golden animal model for a lot of important human infectious diseases. If we treated those animals just with antibody, 
as is often the case now with COVID-19, you hear about people getting the monoclonal antibody, um, including Ron DeSantis right now, the governor of Florida. Uh, we could clear the virus out of that animal within hours, but if we looked at the lungs, they didn't change. They still had pathology in them. Yeah. If we treated those animals with a potent anti-inflammatory chemical, and we used corticosteroids, the lungs cleared up overnight. Now, I sent that information to Tony Fauci last March, as in March of 2020, mm -hmm. that you really ought to consider anti-inflammatory therapy for this disease because, to me, it looks an awful lot like what I saw in RSV. Steroids are part of the standard of care now for treating COVID. Yeah, part of the combo therapy. Yeah. But it all goes back to the idea that you have to think of the immune system largely and how in some circumstances it's beneficial in other circumstances, it can be detrimental and it can be a very delicate balancing act to get it to work in your behalf instead of working against you. So, so, so go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Garrett. Well, you know, just so, so to kind of uh, think about the, the, the uh, timeline. So you're talking 40, 50 years ago, uh, when polio vaccine, measles, and we're learning about how the immune system's responding. And again, to be clear, uh, these vaccines might have caused a hyper immune response or, or maybe a later immune response related to that disease, not another disease or, or some other kind of uh, weird conspiratorial idea. So that's important to understand. Then we progressed in our knowledge around vaccines and when they work and when they don't work. You mentioned measles that now is, you know, very well documented um, in, in what it does to prevent people from, from getting measles. Um, so as we advanced into the COVID world, we developed this new vaccine that is different than what we first started with, right? With polio, the mRNA. Uh, and, and I think for some people like me, that's super exciting right? This is such a, an advancement in the way that we think about vaccines. For others, yeah. it creates more fear, right? That the our mRNA must mean that my DNA really is going to change, and I really am going to finally turn into a lizard person. So could you expound a little bit on what your thoughts are about this new vaccine for COVID, the mRNA? And do you think that there's something that could happen it, it, from an advancement perspective with the technology, maybe even helping develop an RSV vaccine? I think that the mRNA technology is a worldwide breakthrough. And I think we have not even begun to see the implications that it will have on vaccinology. I would predict that within a couple of years, the annual flu vaccine will switch to an mRNA not only because it will be effective, but because once you get the delivery system, which was the key on that, getting that right, it's like saying, all right, here's the suitcase. You can pack whatever luggage in it you want, and that suitcase can go. The suitcase was the most important thing. Now, repackaging what's in that suitcase can be done literally within a matter of days because you can sequence a new mutant virus in one day 
you can synthesize the genetic material of the important protein of that virus that's going to generate immune response within another day or two. And then package that in this cassette, in this suitcase that's already been developed, and you've got a vaccine. Now, you still have to go through some safety and efficacy trials on that. But the really time-consuming thing in the past was figuring out how to develop what that vaccine formulation looks like and then take it into the clinical trials. We've shortened the front end of that enormously. And I think that that may become the standard of vaccines throughout the industry in the future because it's so effective. Now, that technology came about as a result of the SARS epidemic of 2003, I think, is when that one popped up in Asia. And, and there was a lot of concern in the medical world all over the globe because the case fatality rate of that was extraordinarily high. It was around 20%, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Case fatality rate means for every 100 people who are infected with the virus, how many of them are going to die? And that's an extraordinarily high number. Now, you have some diseases like Ebola that are even higher than that but they tend to be fairly easily cordoned off and we haven't seen pandemics of Ebola. When the SARS epidemic hit, there was a lot of money poured into developing a vaccine against it. But if you remember, SARS came and then it just disappeared. Yep, I do. And when it disappeared, then all of that burst of activity to develop a vaccine went away. Yeah. However, well, we were prepared. We were prepared. Yeah. We were prepared. That's where the mRNA technology began to be developed. It still took quite a few years to perfect mm -hmm. it. Uh, I used to work with Barney Graham when I was in the RSV world, and Barney was in the RSV world. He runs the lab at NIH that really perfected that technology and needs to be given the credit for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines that use that mRNA approach. Now, what does that do? <clears throat> when you are trying to develop a vaccine, you've got some options. What Jonas Salk did was to take the whole polio virus and hit it with formaldehyde, kill it so it couldn't make you sick, but it didn't change it enough that you couldn't recognize it. So you inject that, the immune system says, ah, polio generates an immune response, infected. Mm -hmm. Joe, um, Albert Sabin went a different direction and weakened the virus. And that virus could be given by a sugar cube rather than by an injection. It was also very effective. There are other viruses where you break the virus into pieces and you just purify one part of it. Those are called subunit vaccines. But for a long time, it's been felt that the most effective way of generating a vaccine would be along the lines of what Albert Sabin did, in that you have a virus that's capable of replicating so that it can produce the proteins that are the target for the immune system. Well, it has to get inside the cell to produce those proteins. So for Sabin, it was, we'll weaken the virus. It gets in the cell. It produces the proteins. Those proteins exiting that cell are what trigger the immune response. What mRNA does is to just take part of the genetic material 
but essentially go through the same pathway that natural infection would go through. It gets the RNA inside the cell, which is exactly what infection with coronavirus would do itself, but it's only that one protein that gets in. So it can't assemble a new virus and keep going on and make you sick. Instead, it produces this one protein in fairly small quantities, but it's producing it in the right way and expressing it in the right place, which is on the surface of that cell. That generates the immune response. That's why it's such a good vaccine. So, so this, is, this is awesome. And so in summary, it, that a virus, uh, when we get a virus, a virus is really just you know, half of uh, a DNA he- double helix, right? So it has this genetic material. Oh yeah, you go ahead. Of viruses. You've got DNA viruses and you've got RNA viruses. RNA. Yeah, and so, so it's, it's using, it, essentially it's, it's using your DNA inside your cell to replicate itself, which is what makes us sick. Whereas the vaccine um, that we're talking about with, um, with mRNA is it, it's not, it's not doing all those extra things to your cell. It's just introducing the necessary protein for your immune system to recognize, just trying to right. uh, kind of summarize in a, for a lay audience. Yes. The mRNA vaccine has no relationship to your DNA. It gets inside right. the cell. It ignores your DNA. It couldn't do anything about it anyway. What it does is to locate what's called an organelle, its structure within a cell. That organelle is called a ribosome. And the ribosomes are where the proteins are made. Major function of cells is to produce proteins because that's the backbone of life. Not only your structural tissue, but your, the enzymes that keep you going, all of these things, they're proteins. And that's what's made in the ribosome. So that mRNA goes into the cell, it enters the ribosome, and it tells that ribosome, here is the blueprint for a protein making. And the ribosome doesn't know whether it's self-RNA or foreign RNA. Once it gets in there, if it's mRNA, which stands for messenger RNA, then it's going to follow that blueprint make that protein, protein's going to go out and exit the cell, but you don't have any replicating virus because you don't have the full package there. You're only dealing with a couple of cards in the whole deck, not the whole deck of cards that would be necessary for a productive infection to occur and produce new virus. Well, when it gets out to the surface of the cell, that's when the immune system, which is very finely tuned to recognize non-self from self. Says, oh, invader, we have to generate a response against this protein. And the protein, in the case of this vaccine, is the spike protein, the one that now is famous uh, for distinguishing what this virus looks like under an electron microscope. So that that mRNA, you're saying is really just a, a, a synthetic replication of the virus, of, a, of, a, of the spike protein related to the um, COVID, to the virus. It's, it's one protein. The coronavirus has 15 genes, which is 50% more than RSV. But again, yeah. it's got 15, we got 60,000. 
And it's just one of those genes that codes for that protein, but that protein is the most effective in producing an immune response that can prevent subsequent infection. And the caveat is that both RSV and coronavirus have figured out how to shut down our long-term immune response. And that's what we're currently dealing with all over the world with the breakthrough phenomenon that people who either were infected with COVID or immunized against it had solid protection for six to eight months, but now we're starting to see breakthrough. And the reason is that these viruses in a way are smarter than flu because rather than them having to change every year to stay ahead of our immune system, they just figured out how to shut down long-term immunity. So they can set up shop and just keep coming back year after year after year, infecting us. And I think that's what's gonna happen with COVID. I think it will eventually find an ecological sweet spot because all it's interested in doing, if you can even project thoughts on a virus, is staying in business. It has to replicate in the first place. Well, it can do that anywhere, but then it has to be transmitted from one individual to another so that it can keep going. Otherwise, if it just stays in one individual, eventually the immune response gets rid of the virus, it's out of business. So it's going to find a sweet spot eventually where it's easily transmissible and then there will be enough residual immunity that people will probably get infected every year, but it may revert to a common cold, mm -hmm. which you know, we get all the time. We get it with RSV. So I think that's where this one is going, but nobody can tell how long it'll take us to get there or whether some of these new variants are going to be a bigger menace than Delta has been. Keep in mind, it's not consequential to the virus, whether it makes you sicker or not sicker. Yeah. For it, the ideal is to infect you, have you produce enough virus and then sneeze it out or contacts so that it can stay in business. It making you more or less sick is really an accident. That's not part of its scheme to stay in business. Does that make sense, Gary? Yeah, and in fact, some of the work that we've done in, in genomics is um, identifying the some some of the variants in our own genomes that may respond differently to the to the virus. So so some yeah. genomes will get sicker. So some people will get sicker than others, and some of that does relate to our own genomic makeup. Yeah. So we've we've delivered you know something like two hundred million vaccines. Um, and we, we've talked about the past where, uh, there maybe had been some side effects of the vaccine, uh, like the early RSV vaccine that caused hyperimmune responses. We haven't seen anything like that in these massive amounts of vaccines that have been given. No. So how do we kind of weed through misinformation about that? I think with the J&J, &J, there was a finite, but very small number of patients who had some clotting syndromes. Mm -hmm. And whether those were directly caused by the vaccine, I think is still to be worked out. But what you have to understand is that no vaccine is going to be 100% effective and 100% safe. We're aiming for something in the 99 plus percent, and usually we get there. 
in the 1980s, when I was still at NIH, most of the big vaccine manufacturers had walked away. And the reason was that there were product liability suits that were killing them. People would have an adverse reaction to a vaccine. They would file a lawsuit. Juries were giving humongous awards to these people. And the Congress in this country realized, hey, we got to fix this thing or we're going to be in a real bad place because we won't even have the vaccines that we're used to now. So they enacted legislation that created a vaccine super fund that put up a, an effective shield that allowed these companies to make their profit and stay in business knowing that there were going to be a small number of cases where you would have an adverse reaction that was unpredictable. Um, once that legislation was enacted, then not only did you get the old players back in, you got some new players in because they saw now that there was opportunity there for some real advancement, scientifically and financially. So that still is out there, and it's something that we've just got to understand. If you look at any other branch of medicine, you don't get 100% efficacy. If it's cancer and you have 10% survival over five years instead of 5%, that's mm -hmm. no big deal. And I think we need to broaden our thinking more to realize that there is no absolute sure thing in medicine, period. We do Including, yeah, like knee replacements. People will get knee replacements all the time, but they're not always going to result in some people have great outcomes and some don't, but for the most part, it, it improves the quality of life. Yes. If you look at the risk benefit ratio mm -hmm. on it, why it, the most effective form of medicine across history in terms of cost benefit has been immunizations. The biggest bang for the buck. For and sure. You need to keep that in mind. Yes, it's going to be unfortunate if we have an adverse reaction, but we're talking billions now of doses eventually of this vaccine. Is that going to cause some unforeseen disaster in the future? Uh, who knows, but I don't foresee that happening because if we look backwards in all of these other vaccines that we've developed, the technology gets better over time. It doesn't run into a disaster. Now, one thing that I wish had happened and that I had advocated for several decades ago, and one of my colleagues who was a distinguished virologist and a member of the National Academy of Sciences had advocated for was to put some money into the development of small animal models of infectious diseases because we knew that there would come a time when we would have a challenge. We wouldn't know in advance what it was but if we had done some homework and found out which animals that could be adapted to laboratory conditions could support which infectious agents, you'd be way ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We were left scrambling on this one and we still don't have a good animal model of SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. So in your, in your years of virology and, and th these are many, many decades, 
of your experience in, in virology and, and virology science and research. So you've seen the societal reaction to vaccines. It, and many of us and many in my audience probably don't remember polio or, or even were alive for those, for that, for that, to, for, to experience that. So what, what have you seen society, society uh, or societally that, um, that's familiar to uh, vaccines from the past? And what do you think is different uh, with this vaccine today? I don't think that the vaccine itself is materially different in terms of what it sets out to do and what it accomplishes. Now, it's a different technology with the mRNA. Um, what I see different is this backlash across much of society that isn't restricted to the COVID vaccine, but for which the COVID vaccine is symptomatic. And that is a growing distrust of medicine and of science. I don't know where that begins, but I think it may tie into the growth of, of really a worldview that you see within fundamentalistic religion. Yeah. Where, where there is a desire to have simple answers and to reduce the world to simple questions that can then be solved with simple answers. The world doesn't operate that way. It's nuance all the way down. It's shades of gray, but there is a yearning within many, many people for, gee, can't we just have the old time religion? Keep it simple. Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be nice if we could do that, but it doesn't happen that way. And to the extent that we can educate our population to understand that, we all do better. If you take shortcuts and start to proselytize to a population that wants to hear of something simpler and you offer that to them, you're going to get a lot of support. But you pay a huge price eventually because the world just does not function that way. And so when you see religious fundamentalism in any of its flavors, Eastern or Western, uh, you tend to see excesses that in the long run are detrimental. They're harmful. Mm -hmm. And along the way, they will take a swipe at anything that tends to color the world in anything but simplistic colors. Well, one of the main targets of that is going to be science, because science is loaded with nuance. It's loaded with uncertainty. It's like Martin Luther King said about the arc of justice it, or the arc of time, that it bends slowly towards justice. Well, the arc of science bends slowly towards truth, but it's not an easy arc to follow. And if you get impatient and if you decide that you want to take some pot shots at the people who are trying to slug this thing out inch by inch, you can do a lot of damage. And that's what we're seeing. Even within my own religious tradition, Mormonism, we had one of the leading authorities of the church get up in a general conference and take a shot at science, saying, you can't trust science. Well, tell us that story. I didn't know about that. I won't name names, but uh, it was in the context of LGBT issues. Oh, yeah. And since that is 
colored to a large extent by science and science mm -hmm. is is gradually elucidating more and more of what are the underlying factors that determine one's sexual identity and gender identity. Um, if you don't like the message, sometimes you shoot the messenger. Yeah, yeah. So th this is not going to be an easy thing. Unfortunately, over the last several years in the United States, it became part of class warfare that it became a socially divisive issue. It was weaponized politically. And if you look now at the maps, all you need to do is yeah. go to the New York Times website every day and you can see the color-coded maps and where are the states that are getting slammed by this? They're the red states that are thumbing their nose at science and saying, not only do we not want to wear masks, we will legislate against mask wearing. That's really troubling and it's gonna hurt a lot of people. Uh, there's some uh, recent data as well that came out of the um, 2020 census um, that actually was updated just this summer um, in 2021 that shows the religious communities, pre pre predominantly religious communities across the US are the lowest vaccinated communities. That's cat. That's Catholic communities, Mormon communities. So yeah. that there is, yeah. Well, there has long been tension between science and religion, religion of mm -hmm. any form. Uh, and I think it's because uh, on the one hand, you want to trust God, whatever that means. And on the other hand, you have people saying, let's go with the data. And that sets you up for inevitable clashes. Yeah, right. Unless you could say, hey, the date this data came from God, right? <laughs> Pretty hard to prove that one, though. <laughs> so I, I, I want to talk a little bit also about um, the severity of the virus versus how easily it spreads, because this will lead us to the reasons for masks. Yeah. You brought up Ebola. And Ebola has a high, high mortality rate. But you said earlier, we were able to kind of cordon that off because it didn't spread as easily or quickly as COVID. It's Could you make those comparisons? Yeah, it spreads by direct contact. And once they figured that out, then they were able to literally wall it off, isolate the patients, sanitize the area, and it went away. The reason Ebola keeps popping up, and there's currently a small epidemic in one of the African countries that hadn't seen it before, is that it resides in animal reservoirs, as did SARS, as did MERS, and as did COVID-19. And as humans continue to interact in an expanding human footprint that infringes on animal footprints, they will continually run up against these pathogens that usually in their natural host are not producing disease. But when they jump hosts, then they can produce a lot of disease and often it can be fatal disease. So containing it turned out to be pretty simple if you use the right kind of protocols of using personal protective equipment, of cordoning off the zone of sanitizing everything after you're able to treat the patients 
then that one goes away. Whereas with COVID, it's almost as transmissible as measles. And measles is about as scary as it gets for transmissibility. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take much of it either on a surface or in the air to infect the next person down the road. And that's why it has circled the globe so quickly. The Delta has has shoehorned itself in is that yeah. it's better at transmissibility than Alpha was. So when when we think about transmissibility versus mortality rate, first of all, why was why was Ebola's uh, mortality rate so high? What what yeah. would it what was it doing? It, it's a hemorrhagic fever virus, and so it causes a lot of internal bleeding, and that's as I recall, that's usually the cause of death in it. But why a particular virus or bacterium, for that matter, can be so lethal? Um, you can eventually decipher what the mechanisms are, but the fact that it's more lethal than the next strain down the road is almost an accident because it's not in the interest of the virus or the bacterium to kill you. It's in its interest to infect you and use you as a vehicle to infect somebody else. That's all. And you can have a silent infection where you're not even aware that you've been infected, or you can have a lethal infection as long as you're producing enough progeny for that virus or that bacterium to get to the next patient, then their life goes on. Yours might not. Is there, do you think there's a, or is there an inverse relationship between mortality rate and transmissibility? So like if mortality rate's high? Nope. No. It's accidental. It's accidental. Yeah. Survival. Survival of the fittest. Yeah, in 1918-19, you had the perfect storm. You had an influenza virus that was both highly transmissible and highly virulent. Uh, Best estimates that I've seen are about double what you normally see, and that is probably 100 million people died from the Spanish flu. That was the perfect storm of highly transmissible and highly pathogenic. Important to keep in mind the difference between two terms. One is infection and other is disease. Infection means that a microorganism gets into your body and can replicate itself, period. Mm-hmm. Disease means that that process caused damage that you're aware of. So you can have silent infections, and we probably have a lot more of those than we're aware of. It almost goes without saying if if it's a silent infection, unless you happen to have a laboratory looking for something, you're not going to find it. So I've noticed, I've noticed across the country specifically, you know, this is a little bit outside the country as well, but, you know, some very, very fundamental oriented fundamentalist Christian groups have been, you know, pretty anti-vax and anti-mask. Their leaders have been too. They've, they've kind of jumped on a political bandwagon. But there's one um, Christian religion that has not done that from leadership, and that is our religion, Mormonism. Um, the prophet, President Nelson, just sent out a you know, pretty strong statement about the importance of getting the vaccine and masks. And so I, just a couple of questions with your, your historical knowledge uh, with religions. 
why, why is that different with, with the prophet of the Mormon church versus other Christian leaders um, across the country, number one? And then number two, um, why is it that you think the, a, a, a leader of a predominant religion like in Utah says something definitive about you know, the vaccine, but the membership is still rejecting it? Two, there's two parts to that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Part one, let me answer in two parts. All Just right. Everybody. Uh, traditionally, even though Mormonism for the last century has tended towards being fundamentalistic, yep. it nonetheless has tended to be progressive on issues relating to medicine. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we have a lay clergy and that in the ninth or in the twentieth century, in particular, we had several high-ranking church officials who came out of science or medicine and were able to inject that sensibility into the discussions. So uh, that's one thing. I think the more cogent reason, currently, of why Russell Nelson would write this letter is a surgeon. His world-famous heart surgeon until he went into the ministry. So he gets this stuff from a perspective that very few people, religious or not, get. And I think that's reflected in the letter from the First Presidency. It's a letter that I felt was quite strong, stronger than I would have assumed. Because I know that in the base of Mormonism are a lot of ultra-conservative people who don't like that message. And that gets to your second point there. But nonetheless, uh, what that letter said is essentially three things. Number one is the only way to get this thing under control is vaccination. Number two, the vaccines are effective and safe. Number three, listen to the medical and governmental agencies because they're telling the truth. That's a pretty strong letter. Now, it could have gone further. I would have been delighted if it had said, and we are telling all of our bishops to sit down with their congregations and make sure that they understand this, that this is coming from the top. That wasn't there, but I think I understand why it wasn't. Because or open, there, there's a or open, yeah, or open vaccine clinics on Sunday, yeah, after sacrament. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a political issue, or it shouldn't be. So, as we think about um, the future, well, well, well let, me, let me go back to um, transmissibility and masks. So, yeah. you know, the common the common theme I hear is, well, masks don't work. Uh, even though I've worked in healthcare and they don't really care what I have to say about masks, but from your perspective, understanding the size of a virus and virology, what's happening with the mask and, and what is that doing to help cordon yeah. it off like we did with Ebola? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get crude here, but I'll say size matters. And <laughs> what you're dealing with is not the size of the virus. It's the size of the particle that comes out of you that contains the virus. It's not just a single free-floating virus. That's really, really small. What it is is a droplet of liquid 
And when you exhale, you know, put a mirror up in front of you and you'll see the condensation there. Well, especially if you're coughing or sneezing, those droplets get pretty large. Those droplets can be filtered out by an N95 mask. Even a less effective mask is going to take out the larger particles. And what you're doing here is a numbers game. You're trying to reduce the chance that enough particles will get through that mask that they're going to infect the next person down the road. So even a bandana mask is going to be more effective than no mask. But you're not trying to have something that has pore sizes so small that they can trap a single virus particle. That's not the issue because you don't exhale a single virus particle. You're exhaling these droplets. And that's what not only can the size of the mask pick up, but the fabric in most of the masks is what's called hydrophilic, meaning it's, it's water loving. So if water particles come by, it will preferentially absorb those. That makes sense? Yes, I love that. The, the, you said that so well because it, the, the masks are designed to trap the, the moisture that carries the virus that you're exhaling, but the mask doesn't absorb or trap the carbon dioxide that you're exhaling. Yeah. That's, that's one of the other misinformation that's out there is it, it, it's not trapping those gases. No, not at all. Not at all. If you had a pore size that small, you wouldn't be able to breathe through it. Now, right. we do have right. filters that can filter out certain gases preferentially over other gases. Those are really, really small size filters to do that. That's not even in the same universe of what we're talking about with facial masks. One thing so with that, your ex oh, yeah. one thing ahead. I would like to do is to obliterate, at least for a few years, from the English language, the word mandate. Yeah. Because that's become politically weaponized. And if we mandate something, automatically a substantial proportion of the population is going to dig in and say, no, no, you're not going to tell me what to do. I think what we need to figure out is how can we use a carrot instead of a stick? How can we get the information out there that will allow people to say, you know, wearing a mask is actually the smart thing to do. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Rather than saying, you have to do this and have them dig in. It's a big yeah. difference in approach. I haven't seen the carrot yet, but we need to see that. I would like to see, for instance, on a local level, if all of this debate is going on about masks in school, let's take it to the kids and say, kids, we're going to have a contest and we're going to give prizes to those of you who can design the funnest mask and see where their creativity goes and then say, all right, now we're going to take those designs and we're going to mass produce them and pass them out so that you're, you're changing the discourse there. You're making it you know, so attractive rather than a government mandate. The kids would design that would be yeah. just drop dead, hilarious, yeah. funny, gorgeous, whatever. Well, you know, my kids are all, I have five kids all under the age of 12. Well, under the age of 13, sorry. They advanced a year 
this year. <laughs> so they they were fine. <laughs> they were fine wearing masks, right? It 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 was just it's just when the parents are not fine with it, you know. But it, it really wasn't a big deal for them to to wear the mask. And so, with your experience with virology, I think it's also important for our communities to understand the consequences of these decisions, right? So, okay, we're not going to do mandates. Um, but without the mandate, there's, I've noticed, zero accountability. I don't see masks on the school grounds today. No. So it's not like people are choosing to be accountable to wear the mask. The mandate's over, so no masks. Kids are back in school, no social distancing. People are back in churches, no social distancing. What's your prediction for the Delta vi uh, variant, the Lambda variant, um, as we go into the fall with the RSV season? Uh, Lambda is an unknown yet. People are watching and I haven't seen anything yet to suggest that it's going to sweep over the country like Delta did. Delta is a real menace. Mm -hmm. And we're by no means through this one. It's going to go through the winter season for sure. <clears throat> now, what happened with RSV? It's a winter virus, except when it isn't. It's winter virus normally because the clustering of people in the colder months allows it to be more easily transmitted than when people are outside all summer. Except that last winter, everybody was hunkered down, and so RSV wasn't circulating. Well, it's a virus that doesn't give long-term immunity. So you generally will be reinfected every year. When you miss a year, then your immunity will drop even further than normal. See where this is going? And then when you start to recongregate, it only takes one spark to start that forest fire. And now all of a sudden, not only has the RSV season shifted, but the people who are being infected have gone longer than they normally would with yes. a booster shot. Yes. And we're seeing uh, reports now of co-infection of people who get RSV and COVID simultaneously. That's, and adults get, adults get RSV. Adults get RSV throughout life, but um, for reasons we don't really understand on the back end of it, the elderly become high risk the same way that infants were high risk with RSV. Everybody in between generally is going to have a common cold when they have an RSV infection. But for the elderly, it can be life-threatening. So it's interesting that you just turned the light bulb on for me about RSV and the season and what we're headed for this fall. Because in, in my industry, I, I know statistically, we did not have an RSV season. Then we didn't see it. We didn't, no, because people were masked and people were social distancing. So for those who might be listening, wondering, do masks work and do social distancing work? Well, it worked in 2020 winter for RSV, but you you're it. saying because we didn't have infect infectious rates, we didn't get that exposure, and that's going to result in worse outcomes uh, as people get infected. It's a nasty RSV season already, COVID notwithstanding, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. but these co-infections are a dimension we've never had to examine before. We just don't know where that's going to head. And then are we going to have a third super infection called influenza? Mm -hmm. 
because the flu season was almost non-existent last year. That's right. It really, that's true. Flu doesn't go I didn't away. even make that connection. Yeah. That's yeah. really, that's really interesting. That's kind of scaring me right now because I, what, what's the mortality rate uh, of RSV without, oh, without no infection? Gee, amongst healthy adults, it's essentially zero. If you don't have some underlying thing, for example, if you have a bone marrow transplant, there's a window called the pre-engraftment window. From the time they kill your immune system, give you a new immune system, and it takes hold 30 days later, for some reason, RSV will be lethal in that period and other viruses will not be. But for okay. normal, healthy adults or older children, it's just going to give you a cold, period. It's the two extremes in age, the very young and the very old, where it becomes life-threatening. And we haven't seen the very young with the combination of COVID and RSV. No. And there's a misperception that the very young get a free pass on COVID. They don't. Right. Part of that, I think, is because the Delta variant, I believe, is a nastier variant. It's not just that it's more easily transmitted. It's causing disease in people we didn't see disease in when this pandemic started. That it's now in the 50, the 40, the 30-year-old, and more and more, we're seeing it in children, and we're seeing it in the pediatric ICUs. It's also crucial for people to understand that there is a second edge to this sword called COVID, and that is what's called long COVID or COVID long haulers. Mm -hmm. That is that even though people recover from the initial infection, as many as a quarter of them, best numbers that I've seen so far, will go on to become COVID long haulers. And that can mean anything from headaches to muscle pain to fatigue to weakness, all the way to complete debilitation so you can't even get out of bed. It's a broad array of symptoms that just don't seem to relate to each other and that probably reflect that COVID is getting in and doing something that allows other bad actors to come in thereafter and they are the cause of that COVID long hauler syndrome. That is prevalent in kids as well. So if you just say, well, I, you know, my kid's not going to die from this, so I'll just send them to school without a mask, uh, and that child becomes infected, there's a one in four chance that that kid is going to have COVID long hauler syndrome, and you don't know where that's going to lead. It, it's a really scary thought, and we've not heard enough about it. Hmm. So one of, uh, I know, of, I know there may be some viewers who have a little more knowledge in terms of science and medicine. Uh, one question that's out there is if, if we know a patient is pre-melanoma, so we see some test results that indicate that they don't have melanoma, but there's precursor indicators for um, multiple, not melanoma, I'm sorry, multiple myeloma, myeloma with the bone marrow. So precursor yeah. tests that there's, you know, pre-myeloma, could COVID and the long hauler symptoms activate that uh, latent or that, you know, kind of pre-myeloma? Is uh, that 
It's a good question, and I wouldn't even know how to venture an answer. I just don't know. Okay. Yeah. I wonder. Uh, we might be seeing some of that. Um, what then thing with COVID is that it has, at least in the short term, an immunosuppressive effect, meaning that not only does it get a foothold in your body, but it's tamping down the overall immune system. And that makes you more susceptible to other things. I looked several months ago at a report of an autopsy series in China. So this was early on in the pandemic and half of the patients that they autopsied who died of COVID had a bacterial superinfection in the lungs. What that meant was it was two hit kinetics. COVID comes in, makes you sick, suppresses your immune system, bacteria come in and finish you off. Okay. So, so we, we another... don't know all of the mechanics, all of the details of that, <clears throat> but we do know that number one, COVID shuts off your long-term immune response to it. And number two, it downregulates your short-term immune response to other bugs. Yeah, so that would that would have an impact if you're you're you know you're replicating your cells are replicating and there's a mutation that's identified your immune system doesn't correct that no. could be you know turn into a cancer. No. Another right. because part well just for for your audience, <clears throat> you think generally of two types of effectors within the immune system the B cells, which produce antibody, and then the T cells, which produce what's called cellular immunity. Well, a subset of that is immune cells that are doing what's called immunologic surveillance, that they are constantly on the lookout for aberrant cells that are you, but they have mutated in the course of replicating. And there are mathematical formulas that are pretty accurate as to how many of these mutations occur in your body. And it's lots of them every day. Now, most of them would be self-limiting, but some of them would have the potential of turning into a cancerous cell. It's this arm of the cellular immune system that recognizes those and destroys them before they can get you into trouble. Uh, and where this was moved from hypothesis to reality was in the early days of kidney transplantation, mm -hmm. where in order to suppress the rejection mechanism of the body, you don't want the donor organ to be rejected. They were giving really heavy doses of drugs that would suppress the entire immune system. And then they started to see a, an alarming increase in spontaneous cancers in the same patients, which really validated the theory that immune surveillance was what keeps you from getting cancer in the first place. It's a long response, Gary, to your observation, but you're right on. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, it's something I, I'm personally worried about. I, I think that it'll be... Um, I, I'm, I'm concerned that the long hauler issue... And, and, and these other effects are going to create not just, you know, long-term, you know, to dizziness, tired, but maybe some more catastrophic diseases. Um, they may, and the timeline of a lot of these chronic diseases is not months, it's years. We're not mm -hmm. even 
years into this thing yet. So we just don't know. So another piece of misinformation that I know my audience wanted to talk about is the variants. Uh, so there, there's kind of this misinformation out there or this uh, conspiracy that um, the, the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, caused or spawned the Delta variants or Lambda variant. Could you educate us on how variants form? Variants form particularly in RNA viruses because RNA viruses don't have a correction mechanism like DNA viruses or our cells which replicate DNA have. There is an editing function in them that recognizes mutations and tends to cancel them out. The RNA viruses don't have that. And so they are very, my term is sloppy replicators. They don't do a good job of producing exact duplicates of themselves. They just get these random mutations and they're going on all the time. Um, to give you an example, in influenza, which was more studied than some of the other RNA viruses, there were estimates that for every 1,000 virus particles that were in your body, one of them had the ability to replicate. It okay. was that inefficient a means of replication that one in a thousand could go on and produce something else. Yeah, you know, think of a, a hen laying a thousand eggs before you get one that would hatch. That's what you're talking about there. And so the the likelihood that there will be mutants, it, it's not even a likelihood, it's a certitude. The question is, will those mutants mean anything? And this is driven by pure Darwinian evolution. It's if those random mutations confer a better ability to transmit and to infect, then they will eventually succeed and the others will disappear. That's what you've seen with Delta to an extent that we've never seen before. That if you go back to, I think it's the first week in May, about 2% of the isolates in the United States were Delta. By the end of July, it was 95%. Yeah. And it was strictly a matter of random mutations equipping that mutant virus in a way that all of the competitors were not equipped. And so it took over. It had nothing to do so, with the vaccine because this is just the natural process of viruses, whether they were in vaccinated individuals or individuals who previously had been infected and now are reinfected, or if they were just in uninfected people who got their primary infection, it can happen in any of those. And it's not directed by the vaccine. And it's, and it's pretty specific or, or it's just the nature of RNA type viruses. Yes. Because of this replicative yeah. nature. Also consider that if the vaccine were to have caused the development of Delta, why is the vaccine effective against Delta? Doesn't make right. sense. Didn't escape <laughs> no. the vaccine. No. The vaccine is as effective against Delta as it is against the precursors. So that one just doesn't hold water. So, so my, my mind, I'm, I'm very well oriented to how the genome in a human being works, right? And how DNA replicates and there can be mutations in a cellular replication and those mutations can create anomalies, uh, problems, cancer, 
or your immune system will fix those variants. In yep. RNA replication with the virus, when, when a RNA type virus like COVID replicates, uh-huh. how does a mutation, um, a random mutation show up in that scenario? Well, it will just show up that it will read itself differently and you'll get a different nucleic acid inserted than what was called for in the script. That's it. And it happens all the time. Just by After the it's... Shows. As they replicate, you have a misreading of that strand of RNA and it inserts a nucleic acid that's different than the one that was called for, period. That's it. And the replication occurs in the in our cells. It's a human cell that it needs to use to replicate. By definition, viruses are microorganisms that can only replicate by inhabiting another organism, a cell, that has machinery that the virus lacks. The virus cannot produce proteins. So it has to move into your cell and take over your protein-making machinery to reproduce itself, and then it leaves the cell behind and goes on and infects somebody else. Mm-hmm. That said, that cell can be a human cell. It can be a bacterial cell. And the most, probably the most abundant life form on Earth is bacteriophages. These are viruses yeah. that only infect bacteria. And I've seen some estimates that say that as many as 40% of the bacteria in the ocean are killed every day by bacteriophages. Just some unbelievable quantities there. What's going on? So is it, is it accurate to then kind of describe an RNA virus like COVID as somewhat more primitive so it doesn't have the same um, corrective mu- mutation corrective mechanisms that uh, you know DNA uh, replication would have. Yep. And so therefore you're going to see a lot more mutations just by Absolutely. nature. Yeah, that's the yeah. nature of RNA viruses. They're yeah. going to be loaded with mutations. And that's why you get such one of the terms that's used is defective interfering particles, which is jargon for a viral particle that can't replicate and it can get in the way of other viral particles. With mm-hmm. the RNA viruses, the ratio of defective interfering particles to replicating particles can be a thousand to one. In DNA viruses, it may be one to one. So is this going to be just the future of humanity where, because we, we are growing as a population of human species, we are, uh, as you said, in kind of encroaching on other species. So we have a lot more interaction with non-human species. And that's just a recipe for, for, for an ongoing, uh, you know, COVID um, situation. And so is, is our future as humanity just more pandemics or is this, just a 100 year, you know, fluke. My mentor at UCLA was a physician who went into pathology and as a senior medical student was attending the wards during Christmas vacation because the residents wanted to go home for Christmas. And he said, well, I'll handle it. Um, And he lost 13 patients on the ward from Asian flu, that was 1957. So he decided that he wanted to 
go into infectious diseases and did. But one of his instructors said, Dave, don't do that because there's no future in infectious diseases. <laughs> People really thought at that time that we had won the war, that the combination of vaccines and antibiotics had put infectious diseases out of the picture permanently. Uh, it didn't take too long to figure out that exactly the opposite is true, that we have greater challenges today than we have ever had. Now, we keep a lot of people alive because of vaccines and antibiotics, but at the same time, those very processes, particularly the antibiotics, are generating superbugs that are making it harder for us to stay ahead of the game. That's another nightmare scenario. It may not be an exotic virus that jumps from one species into humans. It may be the bugs that we have been infected with for millennia that now are picking up tools of resistance that will provide or pose life-threatening challenges to the entire human race. And I think that's what's caused part of the misinformation about the vaccine and Delta, because you know, in, in an antibiotic, um, and a bacteria, an antibiotic is killing that bacteria and the bacteria is through evolution developing a resistance to the bacteria. That's not the same mechanism in RNA, you know, vaccine or RNA viruses and vaccines. So maybe you teach us a bit about bacteriology and, and antibiotics and the difference between that and, and viruses. Antibiotics are chemicals that can go in and kill something, which is not what vaccines do. Vaccines arm your immune system so it can block an infection by something coming in. Well, initially we had a lot of choices because bacteria are way different biochemically than mammals are, including humans. Yeah means that you can find chemicals that can kill them that are indifferent towards us. That's the ideal. Now, it turns out that when you get into the world of fungi, they look more like us than bacteria look like us. So you have fewer targets that you can hit without hitting yourself. Initially, we were discovering a lot of antibiotics, a few antifungal agents, but not as many. And then we started to see, really as early as the 1940s, uh, Alexander Fleming, among others, was warning, hey, we are seeing bacteria that have developed resistance to penicillin. Mm -hmm. And the response of that was to start to synthesize variants of penicillin. So you have ampicillin, amoxicillin, all the cillins are that same class of antibiotics. And then they discovered um, the mycins like erythromycin and the cyclines, tetracycline, and these other families, classes of antibiotics. But in every case, gradually, these bacteria will develop resistance to that. Sometimes it's through random mutations in the bacteria that just suddenly equip them with a resistance factor that didn't exist before. Just mm -hmm. But more often what's happening, uh, particularly because this is a global community and people are all over the place all, over, all the time passing things around, is there's what's called lateral transfer of genes where 
a streptococcus that happens to be in the same neighborhood as a bacillus can actually pass a gene across that will be incorporated into that bacillus that will confer antibiotic resistance. Oh, so you've got interesting. two ways of resistance developing. One is more rare, and that is a random mutation that will equip that bacterium with a resistance gene. The other is, hey, just pass it down to your friend, and he now becomes resistant. I see. So, so is it was it would it be accurate to say you know a bacteria here is multicellular? No. By definition, bacteria are unicellular organisms. So one cell that has all the goods, all the DNA material for that bacteria. Yep. And a, and a virus is not a cell. It's just a the, not a cell. And just to give you some idea, bacteria were around a lot longer than anything else, including viruses. They go back probably 3 billion years. Bacteria more than are older than viruses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And RSV has 10 genes. COVID has 15 genes. A single bacterial cell has 4,000 genes. Mm -hmm. And what about fungus? Is replicate itself. It doesn't have to develop multiple organs like we do and have everything acting in concert. So you think about the potential for 4,000 genes to run one cell. There's a lot of stuff in there that we don't understand yet. So, so a bacteria, um, just for the audience to understand, does not need a human DNA to replicate itself. It can replicate itself. Yeah, generally that's what happens. There are some bacteria that have adapted to, they become what are called obligate intracellular, meaning they have to go inside a cell to do their thing, but that's the very small minority of what bacteria are. So bacteria, any place on earth, <clears throat> you're gonna find bacteria. Even in the most harsh climates, I would say, except perhaps in the lava coming from a volcano, um, you'll find bacteria that are surviving and thriving. You go up to Yellowstone, mm -hmm. those hot pots, there are bacteria in there that do quite well. So maybe there's bacteria on Enceladus, um, the moon of Jupiter. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So, so with the bacteria and the, the fact that it's a single cell, it has a full complement of DNA. And, you know, antibiotics are, you know, do things to kill that bacteria, like um, attacks the cell membrane and, and um, lyses it and it destroys it. What are the mechanisms inside the cell of a bacteria that, that kind of turn it into, you know, this is work you're doing at soft cell, but that remove the cell membrane. So it's kind of hidden um, to the antibiotics. Is there, is there a relationship between that and, and the antibiotic itself? Or is this just an evolutionary trait of bacteria? No, this, it, it's a growing field. And it's one that our founder really started to pioneer. Uh, the dark bacteria are bacteria that really, in effect, revert to probably how they were when they started. Bacteria started in the ocean. And when they were in okay. the ocean, 
they didn't need a cell wall. The primary function of the cell wall is to protect the bacteria from dehydrating when they're on dry land. Well, if you're in water, you don't need that. And what the dark bacteria do is under certain circumstances, they can shed their cell wall if they are in a protective environment like human blood. And then change okay. what they're doing in such a way that they become invisible to the immune system. They change their metabolic pathways so that they can become resistant to antibiotics that would have killed them if they'd been in their natural state. And over a period of, we don't know how much time, they may be doing some real mischief. More and more of the central nervous system diseases like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, even Alzheimer's disease are showing evidence that the disease process is actually the body's inflammatory system overreacting to the presence of bacterial oh. fragments in the central nervous system that probably come from these dark bacteria and dark fungi. Okay, so fungi. If does fungi can do the same trick because they have cell walls too. Are they as are they more similar to like how many genes and fungi versus bacteria? They don't have as many as bacteria do. Generally, they'll have around 2,000. But okay. biochemically speaking, fungi are a lot closer to humans than bacteria are. So it makes it much more difficult to develop antifungal drugs because if they kill yep. the fungi, they're also much more likely to do damage to us. And some of the antifungal drugs are used because it's all we have, but they have pretty dire side effects. With the collateral damage from the... Right off. Um, the use of antibiotics will lead to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you stop using antibiotics. <clears throat> you stop using antibiotics, then people die. And they die. Yeah, it's how we use them and when we use them and... Well, Target. even appropriate use, you hear all the time, oh, we're, we're abusing the way that we use antibiotics. There is some merit to that, but <clears throat> the appropriate use of antibiotics is also going to result in the formation of some of these dark bacteria. And that was shown in the 1940s, that you yeah. could, the, the best way to produce these kind of aberrant bacteria is take a Petri dish full of them and throw in a bunch of penicillin. It'll kill 99.9% .9 of them, the other 0.1% move across the street, shed their cell wall, and go on their way. So yeah. it's not just the misuse of antibiotics. It's that's the nature of nature. That when you yeah, use and you're going to push some of those into a different life form. So fascinating. So for our audience, um, there, there's, there's, uh, the, the, the bacteria building resistance to antibiotics is no way related to the Delta variant and, and how viruses work. They're not in even in the same, the no. same realm. No. So as we kind of, um, as we kind of wrap up, what, what, what's interesting to, to kind of try to get our minds around and I'd like your thoughts about is how do we proceed as a human family into the next 12 months and even beyond that, right. And, and figuring out how to live as a global community, 
how to, you know, be more scientifically literate and, you know, not so, you know, vulnerable to fear mongering and, and misinformation. What are the core things that we can do to help our society and our human family um, progress? I think the very most important thing is to become vaccinated. Now, that said, that's going to be a process, not an event, meaning mm -hmm. you're going to be vaccinated. And then a year from now, you're probably going to get a booster and you may have to get a booster each year <clears throat> unless the evolution of this virus gets to the point where it's no more serious than a common cold. And then maybe you say, well, I don't need to worry about the vaccine now because it will have <clears throat> found its ecological sweet spot and just sits there. We don't know if that's going to happen. <clears throat> Even though you are vaccinated, understand that that greatly, greatly increases your chance of a good outcome, but it doesn't reduce the risk of a bad outcome to zero. It gets it close to zero, but that will rise over time. What I found with RSV, with our animal modeling, was we can induce immunity in the nose and the lungs, but because this virus shuts down longer-term immunity, the nasal immunity is less durable than the pulmonary. That's what we're seeing with COVID as well. It's what I thought we would see, just on the basis of what I saw for all those years in RSV. So the breakthrough tends to be a nasal infection, maybe silent, maybe runny nose, sneezing, whatever, but it tends not to be a repeat pulmonary infection. So that's the encouraging news that even though you're not going to get permanent immunity from vaccination, whether it's against the original strain or a new one that blows into town, you're much more likely to have protection where it counts the most, and that's in the lungs. People don't die of a runny nose. Yeah. They die of pneumonia. So that's the very best thing that we can do. The next best thing would be to pay attention to the preventive measures, the social distancing, the wearing of the mask. That hadn't changed. That's still good public health. But we've got to figure out how to combat the disinformation that's out there and that has been propagated by people whose agenda I don't understand. Yeah, I don't either. But uh, we got deeper into this hole because of the denial that came out of the White House when this pandemic first started. It reminded me a lot of the denial in the early 1980s when HIV AIDS first popped up mm -hmm. that you had from the White House a denial that this was a public health issue. It was the gay plague. And so we don't need to worry about it. And because of that delay of several years, tens of thousands of lives were lost. Yeah. In I fact, it was kind of like, this is a punishment. You deserve it. Right. We don't have that overlay of, gee, this is a plague because of it was rather a denial that this was a problem at all because yeah. politically that was inconvenient. So if we did a thought experiment, let it, to put this into economic terms, I'm just, again, I'm experimenting with ways to help our audience and community 
think about this really practically. So let's say that you're a startup tech company in St. George, Utah, a startup uh, tech company. You have big dreams to uh, take your product, this new high tech idea to the moon, right? You, you just are, you're all excited and there's a, a group of 50 of you and you work together in kind of tight quarters. Um, and, and let's say that, that you as a, as a, as a high tech startup um, range in age between 21 and uh, 45 or 50. So that's, that's the thought experiment. What, what's the likelihood of that group working closely together to get a COVID or, or a variant of COVID? They're not social distancing, they're not vaccinated. What's the likelihood that they'll get some version of the virus? If they don't take any preventive measures, they're not vaccinated, they don't wear masks, they don't mm -hmm. social distance, they're out in the public, 100%. 100%. What's the rate that uh, of that 50, they would, some, some would get sick and have to stay home because they, maybe they didn't get hospitalized, but they're sick and, and they don't feel well and they can't come in and they can't contribute to this great idea. Uh, I don't think we know how to answer that with Delta. We had a better idea with Alpha and the case hospitalization rate, I don't recall what it was. There are some people who say, well, Delta isn't any more dangerous than Alpha was. Yeah, it is. It is. And the way that you know that is that <clears throat> the people who were getting into trouble with Alpha were primarily compromised, usually by age. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those people are not getting into trouble from Delta, mostly because they've been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. In the earlier months of this, it was quite unusual that you would have people hospitalized who were under 60. But now it's almost typical that those who are getting hospitalized are in those lower age demographics. That says this virus has changed and it's targeting people who got something of a free pass before. It's yeah. all putting more kids into the hospital and into the ICU. If you're, again, excited about your startup, the, there's, there's about a 15% rate for hospitalization or, or even just of respiratory compromise. Maybe they're not hospitalized, but they're making a lot of ER visits. They're not able to go to work. You, so that, that takes out probably seven to 10 uh, of your 50 workforce out of commission for weeks, right? Yeah. And so if, you, if you're trying to build this new product, you're, you're excited to, to take off, but you, you're constantly losing, you know, 15% of your team, that's, that's a pretty, it's devastating. Yeah. You just won't make it. Company. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Say that one more time. It could be lethal to the company. Yeah. And it so does these young people a large company to have that you could turn the phrase around called herd susceptibility. The likelihood that's good into a larger group is greater than it is into a smaller group. Right. So you're so that group, your unwillingness to get the vaccine yeah. would significantly compromise your startup and your dreams. Yeah. 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 Now consider another population, and that is that in this country, we do not yet vaccinate anybody under the age of 12. 
period. So that's just, just for COVID, just for COVID, right? Because, yeah. yeah. So that population is at extremely high risk. They mm -hmm. have no means of fighting off the virus if they become infected. So the adults who blithely say, well, I'll take my chances. You're also taking those kids' chances because you could very easily be passing the virus on to them. And unlike what we thought in the early months of this pandemic, they don't get a free pass. Some of them are gonna get sick. A quarter of them that get sick are going to develop long COVID. And some of them will get sick enough that they'll be in the ICU and some of them will die. Not proportionately what you would see in the adults, but is that really something that we want to visit on our kids simply because somebody tried to convince us that it's against our freedom to wear a mask? Give me a break. <laughs> it's so hard for me to hear that. I shouldn't laugh because I know there are audience members who are going to get frustrated with me. I'm having a hard time with this, Greg, because these are really simple things. This is as simple as Moses holding up the staff with a snake around it and asking the Israelites to look with their eyes and they refused to do it and they died. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It defies logic, but it's very real and it can be lethal. Uh, I think if anything, we've got to figure out how we can turn that stick into a carrot. And yeah. rather than trying to, rather than giving people the impression that the government is forcing you to do, and then you fill in that blank, whether it's vaccination or mask or social distancing, um, somehow to turn that around and you say, no, this is really a smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we are going to get some role models who will show you that you can do it and you can even make a fashion statement out of it. I think yeah. you can do a lot in creating some interesting masks. Turn that around so that people say, you know, the end thing right now is to do these preventive things. It's not that I'm yeah. going to fight the government. When I was practicing dentistry decades ago, I was amazed because I would get some young patients coming in who had beautiful teeth, and they would say, um, Dr. Prince, can I have braces? I said, your teeth are perfectly straight. You don't need braces. Yeah, but all my friends have them and I don't want to feel out. But, Whoa, right. that's a new one. But they were serious about it. That's the kind of attitude that I hope we can figure out how to instill in people is that it will be looked at as a positive thing that you want to do something that's going to protect you and protect other people rather than saying, I'm not going to have the government tell me what to do. And then you die because of it. That's right. Could, could, I, could I press on that for just a second? I, I do have audience members who will say, yep, government mandates don't work. But there is one thing, one memory I have of a government mandate, and it was seatbelts. And when seatbelts became the law and yep. people were angry, don't tell me what to do. But when the seatbelts became the law, um, People followed the law, and it absolutely reduced vehicle death. And and uh, and so, what are your thoughts about that as well, a public health? You know, is, that was in an era where people tended to trust the government. Right now, this has become so weaponized politically that it really is a culture war. 
that's being fought. And in the middle of the culture war, a mandate is only going to be counterproductive. You're right about yeah. seatbelts, but we didn't have one political party with the president in the White House saying, no, you shouldn't wear seatbelts. That's really what we're up against now. Yeah, it's sad. So I, I really would like to get rid of the word mandate. Okay. Temporarily, because it's only going to result in pushback from half the population. We have to figure out, rather than putting it in a negative context, how do we put it in a positive context and say, this is a smart thing to do. And people who are in the know, whether they're kids or adults, are going to catch on and say, yeah, that is the smart thing to do. Let's do it. So that carrot, so there's different carrots. One of the carrots is, you know, you know, a, a, a social, um, uh, you know, a, a social campaign that 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 creates a carrot for for um, social reasons, economics yeah. as another carrot, right? Really, to make the mask a fashion statement. I don't mm -hmm. think nearly the kind of creativity that we could see, so that masks would become something that would be as fashionable as a new suit or a new pair of shoes. Gee, that guy's or that girl is wearing a mask. It's really cool. I want one of those. I think you could do well, that. Well, so let me ask you this question. For those who hate masks, if we if we had reached a 80, 90% vaccination level by May, would we be talking about masks right now? We don't know because Delta changed the equation. In the early mm -hmm. days, thought maybe 60 to 70% would give herd immunity. But now we also have the overlay of imperfect immunity, of temporary immunity, which is just part of the natural history of this virus. So you've got really a double whammy there. You've got the wearing off of immunity, either from natural infection or vaccination. And now you've got a new bad a guy. Variant who is overcoming even the immunity that you thought you had against the previous virus. That's so interesting. Interesting and scary. And I, I apologize for robbing people of sleep, but you ask the questions, I'm giving the answers the best I can. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think we've given our audience a huge amount of information to think about. Um, I really appreciate your time. I have a feeling what I've been noticing with my channel is when I interview people as smart as you, uh, there's usually a request for more. So there might be um, there might be a uh, a uh, request for more Greg Prince on uh, on the show. Uh, I'll leave that to you. So uh, thank you again um, for taking time. I, I think this is really important for our community. Good. Do you post these? Do you archive these, Gary? I do. I post them. They're on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do a, a live stream, but tonight's episode was uh, pretty short notice. So I didn't do a live stream. So this will be recorded and then I'll put it on YouTube and you can share it wherever yeah, you want. So I'm on Apple podcast and Google podcast, Spotify. So there's a good reach. Okay. Okay. Thanks for the opportunity. Talk, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you.